reminder there. So with that, Proverbs chapter 12, uh, we finished the 11th chapter, and we'll be doing uh, verses, we'll be going through verses 1 through 9, but I'm just going to read uh, to start with uh, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll just kind of work our way through the text. Uh, Proverbs chapter 12, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, we'll be glad to put one in your hand, and it should be marked already with the text. Starting with verse 1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Now Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, but he could not think of another word to put here. Um, I'm reading from the New King James. Some of your versions uh, do say stupid as well. Uh, we'll, we'll get to, to what this word actually means. You, you, have a, you have a notion of what you think it means, but um, uh, what it means in the text. Some of what your notion what it means, it means that too. So verse 2, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. Let's open in prayer. Father, we gather here this middle of the week, and we just pray that uh, it's an oasis. It, it is a, uh, just a ref- time of refreshing tonight, uh, regardless of whether it uh, was the busyness of the day or work or uh, struggling to get here. Uh, whatever it may be, Lord, we pray that you would just uh, remove all the distractions, the cares of this world. For this period of time, Lord, your word would minister to your people. Uh, you would just speak uh, encouragement and strength and peace, and Lord, that we would leave here refreshed in your presence. We ask for the work of your Holy Spirit on your word, and, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, remove anything uh, that would hinder hearing from you. I pray, Lord, uh, you would just uh, use me tonight for your glory and your honor, and we're thankful for your word to be opened and, Lord, to be given to us by you, uh, because we so need your direction, your instruction. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone needs insight, and everyone needs instruction. Everyone needs to be pointed in the right direction. But to receive instruction direction, we have to recognize that need. We have to know we need some instruction. We have to be willing to take the time to receive it. We have to be humble and teachable enough to absorb what it is that we're given. And then we have to, of course, be committed to applying it, uh, or it does us no good whatsoever. You can hear a bunch of things. Jesus said this often. He said, don't be just hearers, but doers. A lot of people have heard, a lot of people heard the teachings of Jesus, but applying them is the last uh, piece of the puzzle. Now, thankfully, God is never holding back insight or direction that we need. He's never holding back what we actually need, at least not not what we need for our souls. Would you agree that God is not holding back what we need for our souls? Not what we need for eternity, the gospel's clear on that. Not what we need for walking in the Spirit, the scriptures are clear on that. Not for our priorities, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added. So if you do that, God will help all the other priorities start to line up. He's not hiding what we need for spiritual growth. Uh, And we certainly have everything God wants us to have for wisdom for today, for today. 
Jesus said, tomorrow it's got enough worries about its own self. But today, sufficient. I've given you everything you need for today. And he may not always address tomorrow or the precise steps of the future. None of us know the precise steps we'll be taking in the future. Do we? I don't know the exact steps I'll be taking in 2022. But I know what the Lord's given me for today. My word is a lamp unto my feet, right? Not a lamp unto 1,000 miles in advance. Now, God is already 1,000 miles in advance, but what we need for today will be there. And he's preparing us for tomorrow, but that doesn't mean he gives us exactly every little precise thing that'll happen or that, that we'll need for tomorrow. But he is preparing us today for tomorrow. And of course, he's preparing us for eternity. And so God's wisdom is available, uh, and he's ready to guide us if we're listening. We have to be listening. To be listening with our spiritual ears, listening with our heart. And starting here in verse 1, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. In this opening verse, and of course the, the, the latter half of it, which we all get a laugh out of, whoever hates correction is stupid. In this opening verse, Solomon is about as direct as you'll ever find in the Scriptures. Now there's a lot of other direct passages, but stupid doesn't show up that often here. Whoever loves to be taught, to be instructed, to be corrected, to be mentored, truly loves instruction. I'll say that again. Whoever loves to be taught, loves to be instructed, loves to be corrected, loves to be mentored, truly loves knowledge and wisdom. By the way, you cannot lead unless you're always learning. You cannot lead unless you're teachable. You can't lead unless you are a student. This goes for every level of uh, any person, to, regardless of what you do in, in this world, regardless of what you do in life. Um, everyone that wants to be used to lead other people has to be teach, teachable, has to be taught, has to be instructed. Now, the Hebrew word here for knowledge is dahat. The Hebrew word is dahat. Um, and it means skill or discernment or understanding. So this word for knowledge, whoever loves knowledge, the person that, that wants to be given skill, to be given discernment. Now in the New Testament, we know that one of the spiritual gifts is the gift of discernment. Right? Under the Holy Spirit would actually give. Now all Christians should have discernment, but some will be given an even greater measure of discernment as a spiritual gift. But all Christians are to have discernment. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it'd be like you can have a lot of people. We should all have fundamentally some of the same basic driving skills on the road. You would argue that that's not the case, right? <laughs> you might say, well, you drove in tonight and found that this was definitely not the case. But there should be certain baselines that everyone would have, and then, and of course, that's why there's a DMV test and an eye test and all these other things. But when it comes to discernment, we're all, God desires all believers to have discernment and to have understanding. That's why Proverbs is written to all of us. It's not written to some people. It's written to everybody. Now, the one who loves to be properly taught and trained loves skill, loves discernment, and loves understanding. Notice the, the words that Solomon used. Whoever loves instruction, loves. 
not just likes. Now, there's people that, he, he uses two different extremes here. One hates it, and that person he calls stupid. We'll get to that word in just a few minutes. The other one loves. What about people that just kind of like knowledge? They don't love knowledge. Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The problem with many Christians is they don't really hate knowledge, but they don't love it either. They don't really, they don't hate their Bible, but they don't love to read it. They don't hate the things of God, but they like the things in the world better than the things of God. And therefore, that's a real danger, isn't it? We're told to love knowledge. Not, not knowledge of, I am very smart and I have a lot of information. Not that. To love the knowledge of God. To love to be taught by the Lord. To be given His discernment. Not just to like it, but really to love it. And by the way, the only way that you will love the things of God is to marinate in the things of God. You can't just wake up one day and say, that's it, from now on I'm going to love it. It'll have to be daily, getting into the Word, into prayer, following the Lord, talking to the Lord, communicating the Lord, reopening the Word again and again and again, and you develop a love for it. But the one who hates correction, who hates correction here, uh, the word here means... To, means um, hates rebuke or reproof. The person that doesn't like to be rebuked or reproved just kind of turned in the right direction. You know, if you, you watch uh, any kind of sport, um, this, is, this is not the kind of rebuke necessary. You know, most, most of the way that God rebukes us is not, um, you know, really harsh until we continue to resist the gentle rebukes of the Lord. So if you've ever seen a good coach, a lot of times he'll take the player, say, all right, I, I'm going to move you to right here. Stay right here. No, no, feet this part, part, this. And that's gentle. But if you don't get the teaching a few times, then the level of voice can go up, right? The, uh, the, the kind of demonstrative motions and things like that, that can, that can change. So God will do what he has to do to get our attention, but the one who hates to be rebuked or reproved or, or adjusted uh, is stupid. And if you have uh, a New King James Bible, that's what it'll say. If you have the NASB, it'll also say stupid. Uh, if you have the King James, for those of you that like the Old English style... It says brutish. You don't hear that word every day anymore, do you? Brutish. Uh, and what it means, whether you have brutish or stupid, uh, it means stupidity or foolish. It's also translated senselessness. Senselessness. And that might be the best understanding of all because it is completely senseless to hate instruction. If the IRS tells you this is how you this is how you file. So, oh, I don't want to read that. You will not be enjoying things later, right? Instruction. It's a good, it's senseless to resist instruction, especially, especially instruction that comes from God. If it comes from God, then you absolutely want to hear it clearly and follow it. Um, it's just like toddlers can't raise adults. 
right? Toddlers don't raise adults. Adults are supposed to give instruction uh, to the little ones. They're supposed to pass that on. Well, God is the creator of everyone. We're, he called, we're called children a lot in the Bible. All the children of Israel, uh, you know, in the New Testament, the term is still used again. Uh, my dear children, we are children. God is the one that gives the instruction. And the more that we love his instruction, um, the better off we'll be. And let's look at verse 2. Uh, Jesus said, uh, that verse 2, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 17, why do you call me good? No one is good that, except the, as God. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Now, when Jesus said that, maybe the first time you read that, you're saying, what's Jesus saying? Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Jesus was not saying that he was not good. He was affirming that he indeed was good, and that was because he was God. So he's using the question to remind the person who's stating the question or, or stating or calling him good. He's using the question to that person, say, if you're calling me good, you need to understand the only one who's good is God. But if I'm God, then I'm indeed good. So he was not saying he wasn't good. He was affirming that he was God, thereby also good. The nature and character of God is good. Right? We sing that song, you're a good, good father. The nature of God is good. Jesus, who was God, or Emmanuel, walking uh, this earth in human flesh, displayed the infinite and everlasting characteristics of God's goodness. Jesus was always displaying the goodness of God. The way he would pick the children up and put them on his lap is the same way that God will do uh, in the eternity future, pick us up off the earth and place us into the lap of heaven. The Greek word, the Greek word for good that Jesus used uh, in Matthew 19.17 is agathos. The Greek word in Matthew 19.17 for good, and it means this, it means pleasant, agreeable, joyful, excellent, upright, honorable, among other terms. It's not the, the full list, but those terms would describe the nature of God. Wouldn't you agree? It would describe Jesus in the flesh. Jesus was all of those things. He certainly uh, was pleasant. He certainly was agreeable. He certainly was joyful, excellent, upright, honorable. All of those things would describe the character of Jesus. They would describe the character of God. Now, Jesus, of course, was all of those magnified. Because think of the, the most pleasant person you've ever met, and then try and say, well, Jesus was pleasant too. There's no comparison between the most pleasant person you and I have ever met and saying, well, Jesus was also pleasant. He's magnified beyond the word or beyond the term. No language on earth can fully express how good God is. Amen? There is no language. You can take all the languages in the world and the richest ones you could find, and none of them can express how good God is to say, well, you know, this person's uh, honorable and Jesus is honorable. They must be co-equals. Even though you could use the term for this person and for Christ, because even here Solomon says a good man obtains favor from the Lord. And when you say, well, but Solomon used a Hebrew word here, right? Yes, he did. 
the Hebrew word tov, for good, used in Proverbs 12, 12, is very similar to the Greek word. Very similar. Matter of fact, its meaning uh, is essentially the same, and some of the meaning is exactly the same. Uh, the word good in the Hebrew, here in verse uh, 2, means agreeable, pleasant, which also the one in the New Testament also, or the Greek word also means pleasant, excellent, ethical, kind, appropriate, becoming, and moral. You would, you would agree with it, a good person should exemplify those characteristics, all of those things. The implication here, a good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of wicked intentions he will condemn. The implication here is given the whole counsel of Scripture. Remember, what's nice about the Word of God is we don't interpret the Word of God just with that one chapter we're in or just that one verse we're in. Uh, We don't have time tonight to go through a full Bible study to examine what it means to be a good man, but we do know through the whole of Scripture what that means. I mean, you won't find all that in verse, uh, verse 2, and you certainly won't find all that in chapter 12. It just says that somebody who is agreeable, who is pleasant, who is ethical, who is kind, who is becoming, who is moral, that person obtains favor from the Lord. But we know that the essence of what's being talked about here is someone that God views in a different way, what we're understanding from the whole of Scripture is that given that no man is born with a good nature, we're all born in sin, we're all conceived in sin, no one's born with a good nature, and what, it really, uh, what, what the Lord really wants us to understand in the whole of Scripture is that that man or woman who's surrendered to God, that man or woman who's surrendered to God has now been infused with the nature of God. True? Now, before you you knew Christ, you didn't have the same godly desires that came in with the Holy Spirit. I've said many times, many times I've said, this is not where I would be on a Wednesday night before Christ, much less standing up here preaching it, but sitting there listening to it. That desire came with salvation, and all the other desires to live in a way that pleases the Lord, you know, a lot of people are unsaved. They don't, they're not worried about being pleasant, right? Kind. Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. A lot of people don't have any desire to be meek. Jesus was meek and lowly in heart. That comes from the character of God. You can't just decide all that Sunday, one day when you have never, you know, if, you're, if your philosophy is, I don't get mad, I get even, You don't wake up one day and say, today I'm going to be meek from now on. That nature has to be infused by God. So the man who is good, remember Jesus was all those things, but when he gets a hold of a heart, his nature is then placed within. The heart of stone is pulled out, the book of Ezekiel, and a flesh, a soft heart, is placed in. And because of this work of regeneration, God causes us to walk in his nature. And as we do this continually, you know, we, we're to grow in Christ, right? We, we, we start walking in that nature, but we stumble uh, a lot. And as we grow, we mature. But as we continually do this, we receive the favor. And the Hebrew word for favor here, it means goodwill or acceptance. 
we are, as the scriptures say, accepted in the beloved. The word favor means acceptance from God. Now, what will God not accept? He won't accept works. He won't accept a lot of effort. But he will accept the blood of Jesus. And when that is applied, then the works follow that are done in Christ, not done to earn God's favor. So the good man, or the one who's been uh, transformed and regenerated by the Lord and now has been given by the Holy Spirit, the nature of God will continue to receive the goodwill or the acceptance of God, not only now, but for all eternity. Well, all, those of us who are saved, we're always going to receive in the future, we'll find out just how good that acceptance really is, how good that goodwill really is. But a person who has not surrendered to the Lord, the other half of the verse, a person who has not surrendered, has not been infused with the nature and the character of God. Well, therefore, their intentions, says the wicked, but a man of wicked intentions, their intentions, their motivations remain fleshly and driven by self and self-interest rather than glorifying God. Once you get saved, now first, when you get saved, you don't really, you might be kind of, uh, you know, tossed all which way. What am I supposed to do now that I'm saved? But the more you start to get in the Word, you realize that your whole calling is to glorify God. Your whole calling is to just rightly represent Him and point all the glory to Him. Remember when the apostles, uh, they, did, uh, they healed a man, and people wanted to immediately worship them. They said, no, no, no. We're men just like you. Give all your worship and praise to God. Our whole calling in life is to glorify the Lord, but one who's not come to know the Lord, well, they have intentions that are opposed to God, whether they realize that or not, and maybe they don't. But he said he will condemn. Yeah, by the way, the condemnation, Jesus, when Jesus came here, the condemnation was already on us. It wasn't like that that happened later. Condemnation's been on all of mankind since the fall in the Garden of Eden. So condemnation's already, we were under condemnation before we said yes to the Lord. So we want to remain in this state of acceptance and goodwill. Uh, we want to continue to walk in the ways of the Lord and continue to grow. Let's look at verse 3. A man is not established by wickedness, but the root of righteousness cannot be moved. Um, you'll never be able to establish anything lasting on a wicked foundation. Every, every foundation that's ever been found in the world, you look at the, the great empires that have fallen that were built on wickedness, eventually they crumble. But the root of the righteous cannot be moved. As we looked at uh, Sunday at Ephesians chapter 1, once we are rooted in Christ, we've been saved, we really have the Holy Spirit sealed us to the day of redemption, but also the Spirit living in us. And then the Spirit is the one that helps root us as Psalm 1, as I was referencing, uh, states, you know, we're planted by those rivers of water and the waters of God's grace and the Word of God and the Spirit of God, uh, that continues to nourish us in our life. And we won't be moved by the things of this life, and we definitely won't be moved in the life to come. No man can pluck us out of his hand. And so the root of the righteous 
Um, if you think of like a tree, yeah, the root of a tree, once the roots are super strong, they're way down in the, in the ground. Matter of fact, uh, I've, got, I've got some trees in my yard that are starting to get on my nerves, by the way, uh, because the roots, they don't stop expanding out, and lawnmower blade is starting to get dangerously close to some roots because they will just continue. I have a river birch, and it will find every bit of water out there. And it will mess up something in the way, including sprinkler systems, to grab it. And it wins that battle because it's under the ground. You can't even see it happening. And God roots us deep and continues to uh, show us where to be nourished and where to find water. And of course, it's in the same place, but he continues to take us deeper in the knowledge and understanding of him. But a rooted tree, it takes the wind. It takes the rain, it takes the snow, it takes the sunny days, it takes the cloudy days, it takes the hot days, it takes the dying of the leaves days, it takes the cold days, it takes the shortened, you know, the days that are shortened with light where we have less, uh, less light during the daytime, it takes the days with more light, and the tree holds firm. It doesn't, doesn't move from its position, it's still in the same place through all of those conditions. But our lives are more secure than a tree because Jesus is never going to cut us down. We're more secure than a tree. And we're rooted in Christ because of what he did on that tree in Calvary. It's his spirit that helps us to stay firm to the end. Those who choose sin, a man is not established by wickedness. Those who choose sin and wickedness can't be established now, nor can they be established in eternity. Turn with me for just a second to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Just uh, two parallel, or two verses back to back. In Romans 3, verses 7 and 8. I think these verses exemplify uh, verse 3 and other passages in Proverbs, but certainly verse 3 here. Uh, Romans, um, I'm sorry, Romans 2, not 3, Romans 2, verses 7 and 8, not chapter 3, Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Starting in verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing, there's that word again, good, seek for glory and honor and immortality. Verse 8. But those who are self-seeking, which is wickedness, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. The same things that are communicated in, Roman, uh, in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 2, and verse 3. And 2, it's uh, the condemnation. And 3, uh, a man of wickedness cannot be established. But we see that in Romans chapter 2, verse 7, eternal life Eternal life is, is the greatest reward, but by patient continuance, uh, a tree, like I said, has to endure all those seasons, and you and I will have to endure seasons where there's no leaves on the tree, where it's windy, where it's cloudy, where it's really hot, all these different things, but by patient continuance and doing good. But even in the circumstances, we're still focused on doing the will of God. We're not saying, well, if things are, it's a cloudy day, I'm not going to do any good. 
or a cloudy season in my life. And patient continuance, we do good because God has called us for his glory to rightly represent him in the good times and also the difficult times. But uh, there's those that are self-seeking and say, I'm not, I'm not interested in what God wants me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, there's only indignation and wrath. There's, there's no establishment, certainly not uh, establishment for eternity, not the eternity that would be uh, with the blessing and favor and acceptance of God. Go back to Proverbs. Switching gears, and I'm not switching gears, Solomon did it. Uh, verse 4, although it's not, uh, in, in a sense, if you're, if you're taking notes, the title, you know, following directions here, uh, it, all, it all does flow in that con uh, concept as, as far as following the instructions of God. And let's take a look at what that means as it relates to verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. I'll give a ginormous amen to this. My wife's here. I'm not going to try and overly lavish her, but it could pay me big rewards, uh, you know, <laughs> continuation of my marriage. Outside of my salvation, she is the greatest treasure of my life, and I mean that. Outside of salvation, there's no question in my mind, the greatest treasure and blessing in my life, and by far my greatest asset. I, I recently had a brother that uh, I put a picture of our family, and he, and he said, you're a very wealthy man. And he was not speaking of money, because that ain't the truth. Uh, but, but when it comes to my wife and three daughters, but as much as I love my daughters, my wife is the one to spend the rest of my life with, and God has a plan for them too, and someday I pray that you know, they would have a godly man that would treasure them the same way that I treasure my wife or you know, the other spouses in the room that I pray that the same is the case in your life. The fact that I have the best wife, well, I, I can't help you with, with that. You'll have to talk to God about that. Okay, I'm very biased, but, but a godly spouse is of invaluable incalculable value and in every facet of our life. And both are there, both the husband and the wife are really there to strengthen the other. You know, when you go back and you relook at those marriage vows, if people take the kind of vows that I think are biblically scriptural vows, it really is a for better, for worse. It really is a for richer, for poorer. It really is in sickness and in health. It really is those things. It really has to be those things because life isn't easy. And so an excellent wife is the crown of her. An ex, a crown is very visible, by the way. A crown is, is easily seen. An excellent wife is seen by other people as an asset to her husband. But I would say the same is true. This verse, you can interchange as well in the sense of um, the wife is complementary, just like the bride is the complementary. The bride of the church is the complement to Christ the groom. They're complementary to one another. But uh, Jesus loves to display a godly bride, and a godly bride loves to please a godly groom. Well, Jesus, of course, is all of that and more. But this verse certainly applies in both directions, that um, a godly husband is a great blessing to a wife. 
And in both cases, he who call, uh, she who causes shame is like rottenness of the bones. Uh, if either spouse is resistant to God and is just bitter or argumentative or combative, uh, it's going to be harmful to the other. doesn't matter if it's the man that's the, uh, the issue in this case or the woman in either case. Uh, but when, when you have a spouse that really does love God and loves you, uh, there's an excellence there that everyone can appreciate. And it's, and it's visible to other people. They can see that. They can see that's a good marriage. That's a couple that loves each other. That's a couple that strengthens one another. Both are there to help and strengthen one another. But without surrender and commitment to God, the surrender and commitment to one another will be circumstantial or superficial or both. Without commitment surrender to God, the commitment and real love for one another will be circumstantial or superficial or both. And you see it again. That's why there's so much divorce. Malachi, the book of Malachi, God says he hates divorce. But there's always going to be a lot of divorce because people didn't fall in love with God first. And therefore, as soon as they don't get their view of their needs being met, what they want, well, then you have a problem. And not only that, it's not just that. Just think if someone, uh, remember we talked about one of, the, one of the words under good was joyful? You ever seen a, uh, a husband-wife team and one is really joyful and one's not? Like, this, this could be problematic. Now and down the road, right? Because you need the other person's joy to help lift your spirit and vice versa. C.S. Lewis said, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. That's true. The more you learn to love God, the more that you will love the person that God has placed you with. This uh, Swedish proverb says this. It says, um, love me when I least deserve it because that's when I really need it. We have to give the grace that we've been given. That is when we really need it. By the way, that's not just in marriage. In the the, the, uh, the scriptures say that love covers a multitude of sin. This was given to the church. Paul told the church this, or Peter told the church this, that love covers a multitude of sin, that we're going to have to be able to forgive or to just destroy. It'll, it'll be a cancer that just gets larger and larger and infest. Like I said, the passage works either way. Uh, you, you know, husband can be a great blessing to the wife. The wife can be a great blessing to the husband. But I've never found, think about this, I have never found ever since I've been saved, since 1995 when I came to the Lord, I have not found a situation where the husband is truly seeking to grow in Christ and to be a disciple. The husband is truly seeking to grow in Christ and be a disciple, and the wife is doing the same, seeking to grow in Christ and be a disciple. I have not seen not once, where both parties are truly seeking to grow in Christ, truly trying to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ that do not end up with an amazing marriage, genuine love for each other, 
they truly complement one another. I don't mean they give compliments to each other, although they do that too. But they truly complement one another, and they bring out the best in each other, and they bring out the best in other people whenever they're around other people. Every time. You will never say... If you, you take any two couple, even today, they're the, the two most irritable with each other you've ever seen. If both of them say, that's it, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, and the other one says, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, and all of a sudden they both start growing in Christ, and they all of a sudden say, that's it, I'm going to love Jesus above everything else, I'm going to be a disciple, I'm going to share my faith, I'm going to get into the word. You guarantee it, it's not long at all, their marriage is amazing. God will never ever change the fact that he will always bless that. Now, that doesn't mean that they will live forever. God, God still may have something come along where one is taken home early, and you know, I, you know, you know that uh, Abraham was deeply grieved when Sarah was taken from him. And that, you know, you think about the great relationships in life, Abraham and Sarah, Martin Luther and his wife, Kitty, he called his rib. Billy Graham and Ruth. I mean, you look at these relationships, and they're thought of as teams, aren't they? We think of them as teams. But any time, any two people that both say, I'm going to follow the Lord first, I'm going to follow the Lord first, there'll never be an issue with their marriage. Now, that's not saying they never have issues they work through, but I'm saying that on the whole of it all, the marriage will be a blessing. And not only do married people as a whole outlive any other group, but happily married people are in another category. Right? They truly help each other's health. Look what it says here, rottenness to the bones. You know, really, when one spouse is mad, angry, into some sort of, uh, you know, sexual sin or whatever it may be, or, or um, abusive or just apathetic or completely out in left field, I couldn't care what you do, you live your life, I'll live my life. When that is the case, it even hurts the health of the other person. Certainly their emotional uh, well-being, but also the physical. You, you really have to have God put his arms around and be the spouse. And this could be on either side. I've seen, I've seen cases where the wife loves the Lord and the husband does not. I've seen cases where the husband loves the Lord and the wife doesn't. Right? In cases where one of them is full of joy and the other one not. And a lot of different things can contribute to that. But at the end of the day, both couples have to say, hey, we've got to lay it all down before the Lord. And he really will bless this in a mighty way. Let's look at verse 5. Um, oh, one last thing. For... For the man or woman, I want to speak to the, to the singles for just a second here. Because God loves them too. God loves the singles too. For the man or woman that follows the Lord and for the unmarried, if you, this goes back to the title uh, following directions back to verse 1 as well. For the man or woman that's unmarried, if you follow God's direction, God will prepare, unless you have the gift of singleness, and you know, Paul did, but not, not many people do, uh, there may be some patient continuance while you wait, uh, back to uh, Romans chapter 2 there. Uh, if you follow God's direction, God will prepare someone who's perfectly set for you, set apart for you. He really will. It may take a little longer than you expect, 
and get people to pray with you, get people to encourage you, get, have brothers and sisters who, yeah, hey, you can get prayer every week if you need to. Just someone to help you know, lift your burdens and bear that time when you still are single. But the re- reality is God has someone. If you don't have the gift of singles, he has someone set aside for you. But meanwhile, be praying for a very godly spouse and work on your relationship with God that you be the bride of Christ until that spouse comes along. Be praying for and looking for a godly person and look for godly characteristics above everything else. Hotness is not the number one thing. That's a bonus, but that's not the number one thing. Because that fades eventually anyway. Except in my wife, but it fades in other people. But. Did I make up for lots of teachings tonight? There we go, just saying. Verses 5 through 7, I'm going to read them together, and we'll look at them as a group. Uh, The thought of the the righteous are right, but the counsel of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked are lie and wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. These three verses in succession contrast the thoughts, the words, and the destination of the wicked Thoughts, the words, and the destination of the wicked. He starts out here, the thoughts of the righteous. And then he said, the counsels of the wicked. Where the thoughts of the righteous are right. They're pleasing to God. The counsels, the words that come out of a mouth are, are directly from the mind. So the thoughts and out of the heart proceeds, um, or out of the mouth proceeds the desires of the heart. So the counsel of the wicked is coming from their thought life, and they're deceitful. The words of the wicked, then what comes out. By the way, you see the progression too. Deceit, then it comes blood. It becomes vile and vengeance. What starts out as a softer sin becomes a more harsh as you stay away from the Lord. You become hardened. And, and that's a, you can see people that commit certain crimes say, how did they ever get to that point? Because the the conscience was dulled along the way to the point that what may have bothered at first doesn't bother later. And people can just shed blood like it's nothing. We see this all the time in the news. And I like watching the news, do you? Because it's so much violence. But it starts with the mind, the thoughts first, then the, the, the words, then the actions. But ultimately, God says the destination, the house, the righteous will stand. The wicked, they're going to be overthrown and no more. No more on the earth. Uh, those of us in heaven will never see those that rejected God. They'll be eternally separated, out of darkness. Only God will know where they're at. We'll never even have the thought of them, much less see them. Um, and we wouldn't wish that on anybody. That's why we're called to go into all the world. But this contrasts the two uh, destinations. The righteous will stand. The house of the righteous is actually in heaven. Jesus is preparing a place for us. That's our ultimate house. But our thoughts will be right when our mind and our thoughts are fixed on the things of God and the work of the Spirit. And this only happens when our minds are stayed upon and meditating in the Word of God. And we have to, doesn't matter if you've read the Bible before, we have to continue in it all the time, getting back in, rereading, being refreshed, re-cleansed, restarted. Uh, when this continuously happens... Uh, our thoughts are less and less about us and more and more about the Lord. 
and more about others, and our lives become a living worship. Not just a worship service on a Sunday, not just a worship setting on a Wednesday. Our lives become a living worship. You can be in the car by yourself. You can be in the grocery store. You can be with other people. Your lives become a living worship to the Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 4, the Father is seeking the true worshipers. In the early 1900s, there was a man named Billy Sunday. Let there be light. And Billy Sunday, uh, he was the most uh, prominent evangelist in America at that time. It's estimated that he spoke to 100 million people in the meetings and gatherings where he preached. 100 million. At that time, it's believed to be the most that any human being had ever done up until that time. Billy Graham and later comes along with with the advent of TV and things like that would exceed that. But he preached an estimated, get this, he preached an estimated 42 times a month between 1896 and 1935. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, folks. Can't even imagine. 42 times a month between 1896 and 1935. And he was born during the Civil War. He later became a professional baseball player. It was, was considered, uh, if not the fastest, one of the fastest players in, in professional baseball at that time. Before he gave his life to Christ, uh, and he gave his life to Christ after him and some buddies, baseball buddies, were walking out of a bar, and they heard a group of people singing on a street corner from the Pacific Garden Mission. And they were singing a hymn, and they were singing a hymn that he remembered his mom sung when he was little. And the hymn got in his head, and the Holy Spirit used that to speak to him. And he later, uh, because of that, he was drawn to go to a church all by himself. He went to the church, and then he wrestled for a period of time because he heard the gospel, and he knew he was lost, but he wasn't sure he wanted to give up his baseball buddies and going to the bars and all the stuff, and, but he heard, he wrestled with it, and he finally surrendered and gave his life to Jesus. And I want you to listen to, where did I put it? Can you bring, I need that right there. Yep, it's on there because I want to write, read this to you. This is, um, listen to how the Word of God. Now, the longer you stay in the Word of God, the more you think like the Holy Spirit gives you this kind of view that God wants us to have, to, to really start to think like the children of God. The New Testament says we have the mind of Christ. We start to see the Scriptures in a whole new way. Not a new doctrine, but a richer way. There is no new doctrine. There's only one doctrine. There's only one faith. But the longer we're saved, the the depth of it, the roots grow deeper and we understand more. And so I want you to hear, uh, after all the years of him staying in the Word of God, believing the Word of God, walking in it, it transported this one man's vision and thought of life. And this, is, this was found in his Bible um, after he had passed away. They found this in his Bible. Um, W.A. Criswell, he recorded it in his book, Why I Preach that the Bible is Literally, literally True. And this is what um, Billy Sunday had written. 29 years ago, with the Holy Spirit as my guide, I entered the portico of Genesis and walked down the corridor of the Old Testament, and the galleries were pictures of Noah 
Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Isaac, and Jacob, and Daniel were hung on the wall. I passed into the music room of the songs where the spirit sweeps the keyboard of nature until it seems that every reed and um, every great organ, uh, every one of God's great organ responds to the harp of David, the sweet singer of Israel. I entered the chamber of Ecclesiastes where the voice of the preacher was heard and into the conservatory of Sharon in the lily of the valley uh, where sweet spices uh, filled and perfumed my life. I entered the business office of Proverbs and on into the observatory of the prophets where I saw telescopes of various sizes pointing to far-off events, each concentrating on the bright, mor bright morning star which was to rise above the moonlit hills of Judea for our salvation and our redemption. I entered the audience of the King of Kings catching a vision written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John thence into the correspondence room of Paul and Peter and James and John writing their epistles. I stepped into the throne room of Revelation where towered the glittering peaks where sits the King of Kings upon his throne of glory in the, um, in the heart of the nations in his hands. And I cried out, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. That was found in his Bible years later. And you get a picture of the difference between the person who follows the direction of God versus the person who follows themselves, right? Those words that he wrote while on earth, you can imagine how real they were when he stepped into heaven. Because I believe that although not Scripture, I believe the Lord was revealing year after year the depth of the Scriptures, and he saw the Bible as he was walking a hallway through it. And is living it out in his life. And so, uh, and I say this to encourage you to look at the scriptures as the supernatural thing that they are. The telescopes that are showing the far distance, the galleries around you, the sweet smell of the perfume, all these things. I mean, the Bible is this real and more real than what you can even understand because the Holy Spirit's involved here, the spiritual realm. We have two verses and we'll close right here, but the last two verses... Uh, found in uh, verses 8 and 9. A man will be commended according to his wisdom. But he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. Better is the servant who is slighted but has a servant. Better is, I'm sorry, better is the one who is slighted but has a servant than he who honors himself but lacks bread. The following directions of God in these last two verses, if I were to sum up these two verses, when we follow the directions of God, we sit and God says, whispers, open your Bible. But I did that yesterday. Yeah, you need it again today, right? Just like you need water again today. But unlike water, water will you know, only do so much. The Word of God's going way deeper than water. Jesus said, drink of this water, you'll drink again. Remember he told the woman at the well. Drink of water in the well, but drink of this water, you'll not thirst again because it goes into the depths of our soul. And that's how you can write something like Billy Sunday wrote, because it's going in the depths of the soul. But these last two verses, understanding this, that following God's directions will pay off in the long run. It doesn't always pay off overnight. 
It doesn't always look like, you know, certainly Abraham was thinking for years, is this really going to work? Are we really going to have a son? Right? Are we, Joshua, are we really going to get out of the wilderness? Are we really going to enter the promised land? Yeah, Mary and Joseph might even thought, is Jesus really going to ever go and do his ministry? He's 27 now. He's still living at home here. <laughs> we were expecting him to be doing great and mighty things. He's still helping with the carpentry side of things over here. You know, when is he? But God has a timing for things, right? He has a timing for things. And better, you, it might be a time when you feel slighted in life. Better is the one who is slighted, but, but you know, it still has a servant. God will still have people in your life that will know that God's hand is on you. You, still, you, might, you might not have all the things everybody else has, but you'll still have the people of God there at your side. You know, Abraham still had all those years, Sarah, right there. She was his humble sidekick. She even said Lord uh, to him because she was just had the heart to be a servant. Remember when the angels came, she's like, How, what can I make? I'll go make them a meal. So don't focus on stuff. Notice that God brings us into a family that we have each other, not stuff. A servant. A fellow servant. Jonathan and David. But the one who honors himself, eventually they'll even lack the very things that they were striving to get. The very things the world wants most won't satisfy. They'll lack. They might have bread, but the taste will be gone. We see so many people that are wealthy and famous uh, are, are miserable. In verse 9, better is the one... Um, uh, I'm sorry, back to verse 8. A man who will uh, be commended according to his wisdom, but he who is a perverse heart will be despised. Over time, in both these verses, over time, someday, people will say, that man lived, or that woman lived a wise life. They may not have accumulated all, but... And then the other side, of people that just seek themselves, it'll be noted eventually, what really did they contribute? What really did they add to the world? They were just about themselves, or maybe worse. In the long run, we'll find the real lasting things in life and following the directions of God. Amen?